Hello, everyone, and welcome to NCEA Podcast. This is Kevin Baxter, the Chief Innovation Officer for NCEA, and welcome to this week's episode. We are honored to have Dr. Howard Fuller with us as our guest today. Uh, Howard Fuller really needs no introduction. Um, he is a uh, uh, founder director for the Institute for Transformation of Learning at Marquette University, but he's a former superintendent of Milwaukee Public Schools. And as uh, those of you in the Catholic school world know, he's a strong advocate for parental choice in education. So, uh, Howard, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, happy to be on, Kevin. Um, I also should note that um, Howard will be a keynote speaker at our Catholic Leadership Summit uh, coming up at the end of the month on September 28th, and we're, uh, we're really excited to have him share uh, his um, insight and wisdom with our, uh, with our attendees. Um, so Howard, I want to start. You've, you've, your work has always been so focused on students, and it's, it's student first, um, and that's what you've um, really just espoused uh, throughout. Um, I'm curious how you've seen the education world um, change during this COVID crisis with the shift to remote learning, um, you know, kids having to stay home, and, and obviously the impacts that that has had on um, poorer communities and, and, uh, and, and seeing a lot of that variety impact the uh, delivery uh, of education. And just what have you seen from your experience in terms of uh, that, um, that transition? Well, you know, it's, it's a huge challenge, uh, particularly for families who don't have means and uh, those families who at one point in time were considered to be in low-wage jobs, but the way that America spends things now, many of those jobs have now been termed essential workers. Uh, not that they've changed the wage structure and the benefit structure for these, quote, essential workers. And so for these families, it's been particularly challenging when you're trying to negotiate having to try to help your kids from an education standpoint while you got to go work so that there's food and clothing and shelter. And so for me, that's been the most challenging aspect of this. And as a, a board member and a founder of a charter school that is now named after me, um, I was seeing real time the kinds of challenges that we had trying to all of a sudden provide remote learning, even though our school was better equipped than most because we already had an, uh, an online platform. And so the decision making that we had to make was essentially to allow our kids to take Chromebooks home. But since COVID happened, and as we tried to track what was going on, probably about a third of our kids were really into it. About a third of them were sort of in and out of it. And a third of them were probably not connected very much at all. And we're, we're a high school. And also what hit us was that a lot of our students all of a sudden became the important essential workers in their families because their, their, their parents were losing jobs. And so some of these kids were working 60 and 80 hours a week. And at the same time, we were asking them to be at school. So I think the challenges have been uh, tremendous. Um, and and what's, what I think it has also shown is how important parent choice is actually. Because now what you have is people with means are now talking about pandemic pods and other ways of trying to make sure that their children get educated. 
And so once again, you see how valuable it is to have money in America so that you can make the choices that you need to make for your children. And you can also make sure that your children have the resources that they need to cope under the circumstances. Absolutely. Um, you've also talked a lot about how the system just needs to be completely upended, essentially, um, and how the status quo hasn't uh, historically worked. Um, do you see any opportunities? Um, and it's a horrible word to use because we've got a crisis and people are obviously suffering and, and dying. So we keep them all in our prayers. But in terms of the education systems that, that you've, you've spoken, you know, kind of in terms of their inequity, in terms of their systems, is there an opportunity in terms of seeing everything kind of brought to the same level and then trying to come back and build after, uh, after the pandemic? Well, I mean, there's there's an opportunity. I, I don't think that that opportunity is going to be realized. But I, I'm sort of a pessimist on all of this stuff about this is a, a moment in American history and we're going to see all of this change. Uh, I, I want to see it because I think the change can be for the better or it can be for the worse. I don't think change is automatically good. There are changes that are good. And there are changes that are bad. And when you look at the polarization and the politics that's now going on in this country, there's no guarantee that on the other side of COVID, we're going to see changes that will be for the better, particularly for uh, poor and low and income, uh, low income and working class uh, families. So I'm concerned about that, number one, because I don't think the the economic realities of America, that they're just going to bounce back. And I think for a lot of our families, and frankly, for Catholic schools, this is going to be a moment of reckoning where, uh, you know, it's clear, for example, on the school side, there are going to be a significant number of Catholic schools who will never come back. And that article in the New York Times talked about that. But at the same time, uh, you have families whose economic circumstances may never return or to, to, to be more hopeful that it's going to take a significant amount of time for them to rebuild what they have lost during this period. So that's one whole set of worries. But then when you look at it, Kevin, the way that you ask it, it, it isn't a systemic change in education to go to online learning necessarily. I mean, because what you need to do, or what I think we need to do, is take this opportunity, which is a horrible opportunity in some ways, but not just to look at, look at should we do online learning, but to look at the whole way that we approach education. Why, why should kids have to take certain courses? Why should these courses uh, mean three credits versus two credits? I mean, if you're going to really do a real deep dive, then you have to be willing to examine the very philosophical, structural, and procedural foundations that govern what we do. And I, I think Catholic schools have to be looking at it in the same way. Not This isn't just something that traditional public schools have to address. I think it's, it's a real chance for Catholic schools to look deeply at the way that um, you know, schools have gone about providing this education and trying to see, is there a way to really bring what we do into the 21st century? And what does that really mean? And, th and this is coming from a person who, just so everybody knows, went to Catholic schools. Uh, yes. So, you know, I'm a, one of the reasons I'm such a strong supporter of Catholic schools is because of what Catholic schools meant to me, what St. Boniface meant to me 
in providing me with the foundations that allow me to do so many of the things that I've been able to do in my life. Yeah, that's uh, that's great and a, a wonderful um, message of, of, of what our schools have done well. Uh, and I get your pessimism in some ways because you've lived through this uh, and obviously being such a, you know, kind of in the in the fight for this, if you will, over so many years, seeing the ups and downs. One thing you, you mentioned about the completely rethinking in some ways, kind of these basic core structures that exist in education. Um, in so many ways, this is what I get excited about is Catholic schools have an opportunity because of our autonomy, because we are, you know, in so many different communities, because we have the ability to be innovative and creative. Um, we don't have a hierarchical structured system where, you know, things are all dictated from the top. We can let things kind of create and bubble up. Um, and so I think that gives us an opportunity to maybe rethink, you know, what you're talking, why are kids going to high school for four years? You know, could they go to high school in less time or, or can we do some type of partnership? And again, I think all of this is going to not just upend K-12, I think it's going to upend higher ed and all those things. And so how do we start to think about that? Um, is, um, is some of that radical change I know that you've talked about? Yeah. Yeah, you know, Kevin, the interesting thing is what you what you mentioned about the structure of Catholic education is both its strength and its weaknesses in a certain sense, right? Sure. When it comes to the type of reexamination that you and I are talking about, because because it is so decentralized in certain places, you know, where the parish controls it, or you know, there, there's not a, a a central way. Even when you have an archdiocese or a a overall Catholic school structure. There's this built-in autonomy, and there's and there's these different locuses of control, and that, and that can be very good on the one hand, but on the other hand, when you begin to talk about trying to make some of the deep changes that you and I are just sort of touching on, it makes it more difficult because you you've got so much decentralization and so much uh, ways for people to resist making those changes that would need to be made from a systemic uh, point of view. But nevertheless, uh, I think you did hit on it, that there is a chance, an opportunity uh, to have this happen. And, and I think as, as you look at the financial constraints and some of the other constraints that many Catholic schools are going to face, uh, they may be forced to make significant changes, even if they don't want to, just by virtue of necessity. But it's going to be interesting to see what happens over the next few years. We had a big Supreme Court case this summer, the Espinosa versus Montana, um, that that um, many people are saying did more, more um, kind of uh, to kind of damage the Blaine amendments, which we know have been barriers to to more choice in in many states. Um, I know you're really involved in this movement, but where do you? F- find it right now as far as, and I'm not just talking about Catholic schools, but just in general, the whole parent choice movement and, and giving more control uh, over their child's education to, to all parents. Where do you feel that is um, right now in terms of the Supreme Court case and, and, and um, other issues? Yeah, well, the, the, the Blaine Amendments have always been a difficult uh, issue in many states when it came to trying to get uh, various types of um, choice programs for private schools, um, you know, to, to, to make it happen. And so, although I don't totally understand the ramifications of the Espinoza case, um, 
I, I, I do think that it was an important case in the battle against Blaine and therefore the ongoing battle for how is it that we make sure that we can have parent choice programs uh, in, in various states that can help uh, people who need the help access private schools, including Catholic schools. My, my worry is that given the financial constraints that are happening and given some of the other political dynamics that are occurring in this country, I'm worried that so many of the schools that you would want people to be able to access won't exist. And so unless some things happen, and I know there's an effort right now, for example, in the next COVID relief bill, I know uh, Senator Alexander and Senator Scott have put forth uh, a proposal to try to get a national, it's like a tax credit program that would be of significant help to some of the schools that are that are going to be struggling. And, you know, it's it's going to be very difficult, I think, to try to get Democratic Party support for this effort, just because it's so difficult to get any kind of bipartisan support for anything in America at this point in time. But, but I do think um, that efforts like that have got to, to go forward. I you know, have retired from uh, Marquette University, and I'm not as active as I was on a day-to-day -day basis in the broader parent choice movement. But what I see is that there are significant challenges ahead. Um, and and it's, a, it's, a, it's a, very dif a, a very difficult political dynamic for a person like me because um, some of the people who would support what I want to support on the parent choice side are so uh, destructive on other sides, right? So it's, it's fine that you support parent choice, but if you don't want people to have health care, if you don't think that black lives matter, if you don't think that housing is important, if, there's a whole range of things right. that are important. And, and, and parent choice in and of itself doesn't over all of those things. And so the, the, the question of how do you build political relationships to try to advance a parent choice agenda in the current political environment is very, very difficult. Yeah. Now it's transitional maybe a little bit to that too, because the other major uh, issue that this country has been dealing with is, um, is kind of the racial justice issue around systemic racism, really starting uh, with George Floyd's um, killing. Um, and then obviously uh, everything that's happened since and most recently with Jacob Blake um, in Kenosha, Wisconsin. Um, seeing some of your, your, talks in the past because I'm thinking about this from an education perspective right and how do we how do we do more with principals and teachers first of all who are in front of kids and making sure that they obviously have um, knowledge tools resources they need to make sure um, they're they're seeing this in a just way but obviously thinking about students too and I was struck you had quoted um, Paul Tuff's book um, about the, the these things that kids need about belonging, you know, and a sense of autonomy and control, and obviously then high standards um, to, for for learning, and just how you've reflected on um, and education's impact on this. Obviously, this is a huge societal issue, and there are major major uh, implications across the board. But from an educational perspective, 
um, how we can do we can do better, obviously. Well, you know, like, you know, educators always talk about a teachable moment, right? This is a teachable moment. <laughs> you know, uh, the question is, what does that mean? And, and how do you take advantage of this moment to have our students understand not only what it is that's happening currently, but how it ties back to the very history of this country? Because when people start talking about things like systemic change, you can't really have a discussion about systemic change without understanding the history and the development of the system that you're trying to change. So, for example, when people talk about we need to do something about the police, the question is, how much do you know about how police got started in America? So, for example, if you believe that the police got started in 1845, 1846 with the day and night patrols in New York, I would challenge that because I think it really got started in 1712 with the slave patrols in South Carolina. And so one of the things that we can help students understand is how what it is that is happening today gets tied back to what has happened historically in this country. And, and what does that really mean when you're trying to advance significant change? So for example, if you say that we have to do something about racism, you can't say we're going to do something about racism without understanding that racism has been fundamental to the development of America. And so that when you, if you say we're going to have to attack racism, you've got to be able to explain to students what that really means. You also have to be able to explain to them what is racism. I mean, because they have to understand that this is not, race is not some scientific thing. It's a social construct. And it's a social construct that was put in place so that one group of people could oppress another group of people. So I guess what I'm saying is that there, there are tremendous opportunities here for learning if, you, if, you're, if you're functioning from a social justice uh, frame. But you, but you have to do it in a way where the students can see a connection between what happened to uh, Mr. Floyd and what has happened historically in this country. Um, and, and, and that's not an easy thing to, you know, to do. Uh, and, and, and all of this is being exacerbated by the fact that we're, we're in the midst of a pandemic. <laughs> and so whatever ideas and stuff that we had about how schooling should happen, no matter what the subject matter is going to be, no matter what the frame is going to be, it's all impacted because the first thing that we have to be concerned about is the safety, the health and wellness of not only the students and their families, but also of our teachers and the staff and the people who drive buses and the people who serve lunches. And, and, and because we don't have a national framework to view any of this, people are making all of these decisions on kind of a case-by-case -case basis, a state-by-state -state basis, a city-by-city -city basis, a school-by-school -school basis, and it's insane. And all of this is taking place at, at, at a moment when deaths continue to happen. Over 190,000 people have died in this country from COVID. 190,000 people in, in what is supposed to be the richest country in the world. How does that happen? And, and so I'm just saying, Kevin, that unfortunately, the, the, the opportunities that, that you and I have talked about, whether it's structural or educational or whatever, it's, it's taking place within the context of a historically unprecedented national emergency. And so you've got COVID and you've got 
the, the, the fight against uh, racial oppression happening concurrently. And it, it's, it's unclear what the direction of the country is going to be on either one of those issues post-November. Right, right. I don't know if you're familiar with uh, Dr. Shannon D. Williams. She's a, a professor of history at Villanova University. She's, um, and we have it on the podcast, actually. She's going to be on, I think. Um, she'll be on before this runs. Um, and she's done a lot of research into the history of the Catholic Church. Um, and she's done some, she has a book coming out on the uh, black, uh, black nuns, the orders of black nuns. Um, and I think that's the piece that, that we're trying to uh, make sure we keep at the forefront too, because in order to move forward, you've got to wrestle with that past. Uh, and one of the things that she writes about and talks about is um, there was a cholera epidemic in Baltimore in the early 1800s. And, um, and this uh, black nun who was an oblate sister of Providence, you know, cared for the archbishop at the time. She ended up uh, getting cholera and dying herself. And then the archbishop, you know, when he, he ends up dying um, years later, but he doesn't, he, he doesn't leave the order much because they're, uh, uh, you know, they're black women. Um, my, my point in bringing this up is I feel like this is the, I think, and what you're speaking to, too, is we have to deal with that truth and that reality. And I think sometimes we're very good at telling the heroic story or the positive story or the feel-good story of our history. But in order to move forward, that's the church, too. And how do we, how do we move forward and, and, and say this is our truth, too? We have to deal with that, understand that if we're going to move forward uh, constructively. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's a really good point, Kevin. But 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 the, the the danger, not the danger, but the challenge of that, is the is is the how to do it in a way that gives us a path to move forward in a positive way. So, for example, you know, like Obama was, a lot of times he would he would talk about this: the moral arc of the universe is long, but it always bends towards justice. And I, I think that that's not true. It, it may be long, but it doesn't always bend towards justice. It's only going to bend towards justice if we bend it. And so what we have to do is to, is to establish a framework, a method, a path of struggle that allows us to bend it towards justice. And that path to struggle is an understanding of what we have done historically but then the question is, what are the lessons that we're going to learn from that? Because to a certain extent, you can't dwell on the past. You, you have to understand the past to help you decide how to move forward in the future. But you can't dwell on the past. You can't get so absorbed in, in how terrible things were that you don't then say, yes, but here are the ways that we can try to move forward to make this a different world. Because that's that has to be the crux of social justice, right? Because social justice is really about the relationship between the society and the individual. And if you go back and look at Aristotle talking about, you know, like people ought to get their just due just because they're human. And so what we expect to happen or what we should expect to happen is to have a society that established the foundations that allows each individual to, to, to get to the point of his or her greatest worth as human beings. But then the expectation 
is that those individuals will give back to the common good, right? It's that dialectical relationship between the common good and the individual that is the crux of what social justice is really all about. And so looking at the historical frames and the historical foundations for injustice is, is really critical if we're going to try to figure out how to be different going forward. That's beautiful. Yeah, and that's, uh, I think you're absolutely right. Um, I want to just uh, finish up with, uh, with a question. And again, it's just what I think the what I've really taken away from looking at your work over the years is your focus on every single student in the classroom. Every child matters and every child uh, is important. Um, and, and one of the things you made a comment, um, one of the things I saw is you talked about how schools are good sometimes at taking the joy out of being young. And I don't, I don't know when this was, but you talked about a school that wouldn't let kids talk at lunch. <laughs> you said, you know, who sits around and comes up with these kinds of ideas? But talk about, because we're talked about, obviously, COVID and, and uh, racial justice and kind of how we deal with these issues. But it really comes down to um, that teacher-child relationship. And the, the student has to know that the teacher loves them and cares for them, all right, before they can ever learn. So just curious about your, your, your that's clearly something that you've uh, been focused on and how you see that maybe is helping to get us um, on, a, on a path toward, toward what you dream about. Yeah, two things I would say about that. One is that, you know, there's this book, Return to Love by Marianne Williamson, this woman who did this, ran for president, but forget that part. But she wrote this book called Return to Love. And one of the things she talks about in that book is, is not a big passage, but there's a, a, a paragraph where she talks about the, the fable of the, of the princess kissing the frog and turning the frog into a prince. And, and what she says is that what this is about is the miraculous power of love to create the conditions for transformation. Because in reality, if you don't love people, you can't understand them. If you can't understand them, you can't reach them. If you can't reach them, you can't teach them. But this love that we're talking about is not romantic love, it's agape. It's this idea of unredeeming love expecting nothing in return. And, and I tell teachers you know, at our school all the time that, that we have to love these children even on days when they're not lovable. And, and, and when they decided to name the school after me, this is the second point I was gonna make, the first thing I told them was, look, the one thing that I wanna do is I wanna make sure that every kid who walks through these doors and now picks up a Chromebook <laughs> knows that, that he or she is loved. And if you all don't love these kids, you know, when I'm gone, I'm going to come back to haunt you if you put my name on this building. That's how central I think the issue of loving these children in, in an agape way is so central to, re, to establishing relationships. Because if people don't think that you care about them, it's going to be very, very difficult for you to establish the kind of relationship that you need to be able to facilitate the learning of a student. And, and, and so, yeah, I, I, I think that this is just, you know, one really critical part. And going back to Paul Tuff's book that you met, mentioned, you know, helping our children succeed, you know, is, is, or how our children succeed, because he did the first one and the second one. And he talked about these three, three ideas, right? That, that, that when kids come to a school, they should feel that this is a place where they belong, 
you know, that, 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 that people really care about them as human beings and care about their well-being. They should have a sense of autonomy. And we have to make sure that they're competent, you know, when, when they leave. They know how to read, write, think, analyze, and compute. So, but, but to me, the foundation of all of that is this, is this love for their being, this love for their humanity that I think that we all have to have. Absolutely. And I, I think um, the issues I've seen in my, my career in education sometimes is when adults forget the fact that they're kids, <laughs> that everyone was a kid at one point. And, and you know, kids are about learning and, and they make mistakes and that's fine. And, but it's understanding that we're all on a path toward formation. We're all on a path toward growth. And we, we tend to have expectations for third graders that we wouldn't have necessarily for adults sometimes who make mistakes. So I think... Um, I think it's absolutely right. I mean, you make a good point, Kevin, because one, one, of the, one of the things in the job description of being young is to do stuff that shocks adults. I mean, that's, <laughs> that's, that's a part of what, 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 it, what it means to be young, right? Is to do stuff that, you know, adults are like, oh my God, oh my God, what, what, how, how, who told who thought of that? Why would you do that? And, and then you have to go back and, 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 and remember why did you do it when you were young? Because so many of us have selective amnesia about what we were like when we were young. And, and, and so, you know, again, I, you know, yeah, there, there are things that are right. There are things that are wrong. You want kids to, to, to be respectful. You want, but you, you, you don't want to take the joy out of being young, right? You don't, you don't want to make school like a, the, the most unjoyous place to come to. Right. You, you want school to be a joyful place because I believe that you can have joy and discipline. You can you can have laughter and order that those two things, those things are not mutually exclusive. Right. Right. Yeah. I used to say, especially like young kids, you'd see, you know, kindergarten, first graders, second graders. If they're not happy coming to school, we're doing something wrong because <laughs> the fact is they should be excited to come to school every day if we're doing our. our I agree with that. So. Uh, Dr. Howard Fuller, it's been an honor speaking with you. Thank you so much for your time. And uh, we are especially grateful to have you join us um, uh, later this month at our Catholic Leadership Summit. So thank you so much uh, for your time on the podcast. Well, Kevin, thanks for having me. This is Kevin Baxter, Chief Innovation Officer for NCA. Thank you so much for joining us for this episode of NCA Podcast. We will see you next time. God bless. God bless.